Natasha Leonard is a contributing writer for The Intercept, and her work has appeared regularly in The New York Times, Esquire, Vice, Salon, and The New Inquiry, among others. She teaches in the Creative Publishing and Critical Journalism program at the New School for Social Research, and is the author of two books, Violence, co-edited with Brad Evans, and Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life, from Verso Books. In this interview, I asked Natasha about the recent murder by police of Tyree Nichols, Keenan Anderson, and the environmental activist known as Tortuguita. She talks about the fact that these are just three of the more prominent deaths this year alone at the hands of police and explains the relationship of these losses to the inherent violence of policing. What she makes clear is that despite the fact that cops don't stop or prevent crime and actually produce more violence than they stop, it is still the case that for a number of reasons, the burden is never on those who align with carceral thinking to defend the police. And why is that the case? Because there is a deep ideological attachment to police and policing, to so-called justice in a carceral world. And that attachment is fed by a regime of representation that reinforces the heroism of cops, in spite of all evidence to the contrary. As a means of working through this problem, Natasha talks about Antonio Gramsci's notion of common sense as a tool for understanding some of the baseline assumptions that exist to regulate action and reaction. These are some complicated issues, and she admits that it's tricky. While we can fall into the trap of using what feels like exhausted ideas, the trap of political theater in a sense, Leonard's analysis has a way of cutting through the contradictions and centering the fact of ongoing oppression. If you do that, then you move out of theoretical debates about strategy and into the streets. For this reason, she celebrates the small but nimble and durable protests against Cop City in Atlanta. She speaks ardently in support of the need for trans liberation and articulates that imperative against the array of powerful revanchist far-right forces who stand against it. Because of the sort of spectacle of political polarization that we saw um, during Biden's State of the State of the Union address. I kind of wanted to start there. Sure. The fact that, you know, uh, Tyree Nichols' parents were present at the State of the Union uh, address and, and this like curious moment where you have Biden expressing sympathy. I always find, you know, um, the, the celebritizing of heroes and victims to be kind of strange during the State of the Union address, like making these people that have suffered so much so recently participate in this spectacle is odd to me. And then to, in a sense, use them to, on the one hand, uh, um, you know, talk about white privilege, the particular privilege of not having to have the talk, but then also to sort of use them as a means of parading out this this kind of apologistic discourse around police violence, um, you know, and, and which rested from Biden's perspective on this kind of bizarre notion of there being a covenant. He uses the term covenant between the public and the police uh, that he suggested was sort of broken when they inflicted lethal violence on Tyree. So I guess, you know, I wanted to kind of just open it up to your general reactions to that address, but like this particular moment. Right. Um, yeah, uh, I have a couple of, of responses to that. Um, but I should I should preface them by saying, um, because I'm not super interested in 
civic religion. Um, I didn't watch the State of the Union. I watched a gritty uh-huh. crime TV show whilst that was happening. But that, uh, given that hmm. I'm also committed to uh, terrible online habits, I know precisely what happened, probably blow by blow, as if I had tuned in live, thanks to Twitter. Um, and mm-hmm. very much do you know the, the moment you're talking about. Um, and uh, which very much speaks to the problem of this, these sort of civic religious performances and the pomp and ceremony that they entail. Um, and of course, the, the presence of Terry Nichols's family there is not the first time we've seen something like this. And obviously it's difficult to see people in such extraordinary pain, pain that's produced by entrenched state practices being then um, asked to be sort of performers for the state. Um, That said, I'm nervous sometimes to uh, weigh in critically about the entire situation and presence of victims, families um, in these moments, because of course these parents have agency. Um, And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not only Tyree Nichols's family who have chosen to take up state uh, invitations and make their presence known. Um, And there's a, you know, I don't think I'm, I would reject a narrative wherein they're just sort of dupes for um, democratic uh politicking and apologism that might indeed mm. be the effect of these kind of um events and presences and invitations um but at the same time these are families in you know the worst imaginable grief demanding acknowledgement um i mm. you know no no thanks to biden and no thanks to you know, say uh, Kamala Harris speaking at the funeral for, um, you know, fully acknowledging and reckoning with the violence. But um, I wouldn't want to deny the agency of these families demanding acknowledgement and finding whatever halls of, of access and power they can to attempt to do so in a, you know, an impossible situation. Do I think it will lead to the change that would make, would foreclose the possibility of future victims and future um, police murders. Absolutely not. I'm an abolitionist for a reason, but nor do I demand uh, grieving families share my politics. Um, But no, of course, Mm. I think there's something profoundly cynical on behalf of the politicians um, when, uh, you know, their acts of acknowledgement and performance of shared grief um, must always then come with a reinstatement of the importance and indeed like societal necessity of the police. I mean, that's not an accidental um, speech act. And, you know, mm-hmm. the figure that often arises in these moments and did again in Tyree Nichols's funeral um, was, of course, uh, Al Sharpton, who spoke at the funeral um, and has often put himself at front and center of uh, performances of grief with families who have lost their kids to the violence that is policing. Um, Do I think he also does work incredibly hard to try and get uh, families' acknowledgement of sorts that they deserve? Yes. Do I see a cynicism and performance in it? Yes. 
Um, but he, I wanted to draw attention to what he actually said at the funeral, mm-hmm. um, which was he very he very much made a point about uh, it being somehow especially awful that uh, Nichols's uh, executioners were um, at least five of them, the five that have been charged, uh, black police officers. Um, and in a sort of inverted logic of sorts, he was making the point of, you know, how do you, how dare you, as police, as police officers, act this way, given that the work of civil rights leaders and the work of struggle meant that you could be a police officer in the first place. And in a certain way, that's just a historical truth, right? Like without certain civil rights struggles, there would have not been places on, um, you know, municipal police departments as they are now for black police officers. But the idea of him framing that in the moment of uh, this great achievement of what civil rights struggle has been about was, I think, really pernicious. And of course, not what uh, black liberation has meant to so many people for centuries of struggle. Um, and indeed also forgets um, a long, long history of, um, you know, the fact that it's uh, black individuals having worked as slave catchers. And um, James Baldwin's famous paragraphs in his long essay about um, the disappearance and murder of children, black children in Atlanta, um, and it's a kind of meandering but brilliant long essay. Um, and he writes about um, black communities having all the more fear for black cops, not because it's a specific type of betrayal, but because of a type of black knowledge developed in response to what the philosopher Charles Mills calls white ignorance, in that what's so fearsome about um, black cops is the idea that, you know, they have an understanding that white cops don't, but because they are still very much in the system of white violence, the system of white supremacy that is policing. And I think uh, people might have been reading Sharpton at the funeral saying something different, but really he was just repeating a particularly pernicious form of the the bad apples argument that we see every single time. Um, So yeah, I think there was a lot of um, troubling a lot of troubling performances in response to this from public political figures. Um, but I don't think mm-hmm. that speaks at all against, you know, the families doing everything they can um, and using every kind of route possible to demand an acknowledgement that, that Nichols, Tyree Nichols himself was obviously not accorded. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I really appreciate that analysis. It cuts through so many of these, as I say, kind of contradictory messages that can leave you sort of spinning um, as you try to kind of um, figure out a means through uh, uh, the, the qu- kind of questions of justice, which are so often in a carceral society, um, you know, really determined in relationship to uh, the justness of punishment. But in, in another instance, I mean, you've written an article uh, on Keenan Anderson's death at the hands of uh, the Los Angeles police. You you write in that article um, in which, you know, that's titled LAPD held down Keenan Anderson, repeatedly tased him, then suggested his death was his own fault. That body cam footage showed Keenan Anderson being chased and pinned down in the middle of the street, he was held down, tased 
for, you know, a total of over 90 seconds, uh, you know, just brutalized, taken to the hospital, dies four hours later. Um, and, and so you're, you know, the thing that you said um, now so long ago, the first time you spoke to me is that we need to actually um, move past requiring as I think you put it, a supply of black and brown death in the in the coming from visual culture, mm-hmm. coming from the media, um, toward a kind of more capacious historical frame, in a sense, like to make the connections clear. Like reflecting on this in relationship to your article on Keenan Anderson, I was thinking also about the um, the the documentary Riotsville, USA, created by Sierra Pettengill. Pettengill is offering this kind of um, theoretical analysis in a sense. And and there's like one line in particular from that documentary where she talks about wishing she had a photo that captured both the state's repression and the character of the kinds of rebellions and so-called riots that it causes. But like, that's not what we get from visual culture. We get snippets, we get, you know, 15 seconds, we get an image, right? Right. And there's so much outside of that frame. And I think like this is part of what you were kind of pushing against. And yet clearly these images like matter, they're crucial, like making the public is is always part of the the push by uh, often progressives to demand justice, uh, to make these crimes visible. Without them, we have to rely on the police's accounts, um, which as you point out uh, in this instance, in, in Kenan Anderson's instance, is deeply skewed by the sort of stigma around drug use. Um, so I wondered if you could unpack that article and what you're talking about in terms of like the PR tactic of the LAPD uh, relying on racist narratives around drugs um, and just thoughts on like the power of images in 2023. It's a very complicated one in terms of um, talking about, yeah, the, the consumption of these um, brutal, you know, essentially like snuff films in a way. Um, right. But uh, yeah, so just for some context for listeners, um, because I mean, there there have been uh, all too many violent, like you know, just uh, extraordinary racist, violent police murders in this this year alone. We're at the beginning of February. Yeah. Um, but Keenan Anderson was held down, as you mentioned, and as I wrote in my recent column, and tased, and later died in hospital. And then, um, clearly, the the causal relation to the tasing cannot be ignored. And I say. With even though there is no official autopsy report yet, um, I say unambiguously that man was killed by the police. Um, mm-hmm. Before any official independent autopsy has been released, the police then very quickly make a point of having a press conference to say, "Well, uh, we did a quick, we did a quickie toxicology report on the guy, and he had traces of marijuana um, and cocaine in his system," which obviously opens up the right-wing charge of the man the man died from drugs um the racist charge of well he was on drugs that's what killed him um not only that gave the police uh grounds to like treat him as dangerous but that clearly is why he died had he not been on drugs he would have died all we know from that toxicology report is that within like three days of his encounter with police he had maybe the smallest trace of um you know the only drug that could remotely be relevant here cocaine and also to be clear it can't be relevant uh almost without uh exception when cocaine overdoses happen it's when the person is taking cocaine you don't get a cocaine overdose 
four hours after being in hospital, after having been uh, tased again and again and beaten by cops. Um, it's not the cocaine that's killing you. Um, but of course it played into mm-hmm. these discrediting victim blaming narratives. Um, now to talk about the um, use of the, the, the use and abuse and, and dangers of, of circulation of these uh, death images, usually from police body cams, sometimes from, um, you know, as we know from uh, George Floyd's execution, uh, cell phone footage of people nearby and other examples like that. Um, and I had made this, you know, I've like, I'm white and privileged as my voice probably <laughs> clarifies to anyone who knows anything about England. Um, and I had certainly made um, the the mistake before of seeing a sort of like justice in the circulation of these images, the sort of taking the image uh, into uh, victims' own hands and they're choosing to share it and then um, you know, repeat aspects of the images in protest to reclaim it. So, you know, hands up, don't shoot, for example, uh, became a protest chant. Um, but uh, by the same token, like, let's talk about what's actually happening and what does and doesn't re- entail any sort of justice with this sort of circulation. Hmm. Because even in the Tyre Nichols, Tyree Nichols um, released video, um, there isn't something that's just necessarily like some uh, transcending, indisputable truth that is spoken to power um, that is then achieved by videos like this um, and that then police are held accountable and discredited because you even see the narratives play out in these videos. Cops who know how to narrativize during the filming in ways that can already mm. discredit um, their victim can already create some sort of notion of justified violence. Um, and that's available because it pre-exists. There is no like pre-political truth to these videos. Um, there is a standing established narrative that the police of the police and the power structures that they um, protect and support um, and represent um, that that it's even legible that an unarmed or even an armed um, black man or black child um, could be legible at all as a risk um, per se, as always already a risk such that the the interaction in the first place could make any sense, you know, five cops on on one guy. Um, So it's, Mm. it's not like just the fact of a brutal murder caught on film in and of itself overcomes those entrenched narratives, those entrenched narratives that courts continue to agree upon, that policing budgets to continue to agree upon, that black life needs to be policed and, um, you know, disposed of in this way. So the idea that just a video could overcome that, I think, misunderstands what, uh, as you say, snippets, but any sort of like visual representation as some sort of pure and overwhelming fact could be. And I just think that's not, it's empirically untrue. Um, Even if some, you know, Mm -hmm. video evidence has led to what some necessary but deeply insufficient uh, carceral responses, for example, like George Floyd's killers being convicted. Um, Hardly justice there. And uh, we also have um, too many centuries of uh, 
just mm-hmm. kind of proven limitations of what it means to circulate these kind of images as this sort of path to justice. It just isn't. It's um, often, you know, within the framework of the white gaze, uh, just a reassertion of injustice. And, um, you know, it's not like there wasn't a market largely for, uh, you know, almost entirely for white audiences of lynching photos. Lynching photos were mass reproduced and sold. So clearly the like violent images of black people being executed in the most appalling ways in front of mobs, that being caught on film was in no way some sort of inherent means to justice, quite the opposite. Um, These were tokens for racist, for a racist white, economy a racist white market who want to consume and hold Mm -hmm. these images um am I comfortable to say that things have moved on so much when these things circulate on Twitter and that there's just some sort of power to them per se that will lead to justice I mean it's simply untrue um I think seeing something much more sticky and maybe much more disgusting is going on um and uh you know how many more times how many more videos if this was some sort of path to justice this would have happened right now this would have happened um so I just don't think these um visual objects circulating do the work that uh sometimes we like to pretend they do and they might be doing something much more damaging um is that to say you know end body cams end taking end filming cops absolutely not It's about how these images get circulated and the assumption that there is some sort of uh, attainment of justice in circulating these really violent images of black death again and again and again, when there just hasn't been for centuries. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, it's this notion that like, of course, images are powerful, but they just aren't the whole story. Um, the again, like the, the all of all of the stuff that falls outside of the frame is really crucial. And I think like the way that you convey that insight in your piece on Keenan Anderson's death is really powerful. Like especially um, the notion that propaganda is in some cases, um, you know, like we overestimate its power uh, in in ways that are a little bit mystifying, right? Like that, as you say, like in the, in the article, the lionization of the police is as deep seated as any American ideology. It's resistant to, um, you know, even the, the appropriate canceling or repositioning of cops, for example, or live PD, these, you know, criminally propagandist shows. Um, and so to again, quote you, you say it would be too generous to those in power to grant that they have simply been misled by propaganda. What what's clear is that the institution of policing, it, it runs deeper, like it's more entrenched. Um, you know, it's about the correlation you say between uh, property, power and racial hierarchy. So um, I just, you know, I wondered if you could expand on this idea that we maybe overestimate the impact of propaganda and miss the ideological expediency of just carceral thinking. I mean, you know, despite the fact that, um, as you say, police killed over 1,100 people in 2022, more killings than in any of the last 10 years, you still have a bloating of police budgets across the board. Um, So clearly just removing cops or live PD from the air uh, is not adequate. It clearly body cams 
are not adequate. They themselves become a form of propaganda to the extent that police are being trained to, as you say, like narrate what's happening uh, in real time. Like they're openly told during training, in fact, right. that the function of body cameras is to exonerate police. Yeah. And I think that's so, you know, it's it's the same in terms of, yeah, when we're talking about like fictional, and I say this as someone who like, I, you know, I, I, I think I've seen every episode of Law and Order SVU and that, you know, it's, it's propaganda in the same way that 24 was like war on terror, war on terror propaganda. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think these things do nothing in society um, at all. Um, but I would also say like, what are the assumptions and presumptions already at play that mean these shows can be bought and sold to networks and signed off on in the first place? What is happening, as you say, that like frames the frame when uh, police turn on their body cams? Um, and I think uh, if I'm it, like the suggestion of we over maybe overestimate the the strength of of fictional cop shows or um, you know, when cops put out videos of like, look at this lovely neighborhood cop being hugged by a kid or like kneeling alongside sure. um, this peaceful Black Lives Matter protest. Um, you know, these these new like um, cop cars that I think I uh, that are like decorated in like Black Lives Matter um, decals and stuff like that. I mean, this isn't you know, they wouldn't bother with shit like that if it didn't have some some power. Mm. But I think uh, if that's all that, as you say, if that's all the power it had, all our struggle would just have to be focusing on overwhelming that with counter propaganda or stopping that propaganda or ending SVU. But um, and again, like most abolitionists, like most of my friends who share my abolitionist politics also will indulge in their little bit of of law and order SVU. And it's like this uh, fantasy of. Um, a different kind of a different kind of policing or just a like you know I also watch horror films and I don't want them to be real um but mm-hmm. I think yeah if if these sort of uh visual representations fictional and non-fictional sh- fictional were the only thing we had to deal with um then that would be a much uh easier fight and a much easier struggle but actually we have to deal with why these things make sense in the first place and that is uh, you know, the, the hegemonic structure from which they are birthed, uh, wherein, you know, to use Gramsci's term of common sense, the standing common sense, not good sense, but the standing common sense is around the necess- necessity of cops, is around property relations, and thus is around uh, certain standing for whiteness. Um, and that's a lot, you know, shifting a hegemony is much harder than turning off certain visual stimuli um obviously and shifting Mm -hmm. um popular narratives on tv uh although it's all part of it um so i think yeah what are the conditions of possibility that those kind of shows make sense in the first place and obviously it's a deep deep entrenched policing ideology and carceral ideology an idea of what justice gets to look like and what uh investigation means and what you know to the extent of what even like truth through justice systems gets to be and it's much deeper than you know uh sometimes the yeah critiques even of of propaganda appreciate Mm -hmm. um yeah well said and and uh, i i guess i wanted to ask you about the, the the two articles in particular that you've written on the crackdown on cop city protesters in atlanta and the kind of role of 
the kind of rewriting of the law that has been happening, especially after January 6th and the Capitol riots and some of its sort of knock on effects in terms of um, policing the left, you know, uh, suppressing, you know, movements against ecocide and against genocide. And and this is to the point of like, how, how does a radical movement gain and and maintain momentum? Like one of the things you're saying here is that, um, and it's in the title that, you know, the crackdown is brutal because of the movement's success. Like you're talking about the particular staying power of the movement against uh, Cop City, its organizing tactics, its inventiveness. Um, so there's a lot of this kind of um, underlining of the positive aspects of this, but this is now on people's radar in part because of the killing of uh, Tortuguta, uh, this 26-year-old um, ecological activist. Um, and and I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, what you're trying to work through here in terms of the, the sort of insurgency from above that's happening in Atlanta, where now it appears as though um, Cop City's development is like moving forward, uh, despite the fact that there is uh, an oppositional movement, an occupation that says we're not going away. And in particular, like the role of the invocation of domestic terror laws to suppress this ongoing occupation of the planned cop city. I mean, that, of course, also and for people that don't know, if you could explain like what cop city represents this in massive investment. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, like a few things there. So first of all, just to mm-hmm. touch on the first point um, about uh you know, abolitionists articulating um, the difficulty of of that articulation, and and like you know, there are people who mm-hmm. do it much better than I do. It's like people like Mariam Carver, Derricka Parnell, um, I think are like really crucial leading thinkers in in the, in this moment. Um, and um, yeah, obviously, a huge part. Uh, you know, this this moment in twenty twenty, uh, during you know. Black proletarian-led uprisings um, seem to like crack open the possibility of a, a discourse around abolition being taken more seriously. Sometimes in the more defanged language of defund, which then itself was considered just unspeakable because of um, the prioritization of, of elect election narratives. So it was obviously yes, this was a it was a really violent. Um, betrayal and you know I'm not denying that maybe defund was not a particularly successful like electoral strategy I don't think those in the streets were really thinking about electoral strategy at that point and nor should they be um but I would say that um yes I think the 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 and this is not the first time it's happened the deep betrayal of even allegedly like progressive democrats uh following 2020 um just I think uh, underlines the difficulty of of this struggle and the just the assumption of uh, that co- covenant between people and police, um, d- like you know, against all evidence, right? Like this is when liberal calls for for being rational and reasonable show their own ill reason and that they can't even live up to their own standards because you know we've got multiple, multiple, multiple reports and findings that police, you know, they don't stop crime, they don't prevent crime, that the carceral state produces more violence than it um, would potentially stop. Um, The racism of it all, the murderousness of it all, uh, you know, this has been well established, to the point that were we living in any sort of 
um, you know, rational political uh, body politic, there would it would be the defenders of carceral policing and policing per se that would have to answer. Uh, that would have to, you know, the the burden would be on them to defend the police rather than the burden being on abolitionists to say what exactly we would do instead. Uh, but that's not what happens, uh, which speaks to how, uh, you know, this is a matter of of deep, deep foundational ideology in this country. So, um, you know, that's what's going on there. And it and it and it's very, very hard to overcome, especially when alleged allies are so willing to drop it. Um, and then, okay, to move on to Cop City. Cop City, mm-hmm. um, which... Uh, which is uh, the, a planned uh, riots full of sorts, a planned huge, hugest in the entire the state and its surrounding states planned to be cop training area. There's supposed to be an entire uh, mock downtown built where cops can practice their riot suppression, including with you know like fake rioting actors and um, you know practice using missile launchers and uh, explosive training with explosives and cops from all around the country are supposed to be able to go there and train too. Um, so really, and um, the plan for this, it's not just they're using, you know, what would have already been, uh, you know, a tract of, a mass tract of concrete. Um, the movement against it is called Defend the Atlanta Forest slash Stop Cop City because the plan for Cop City is to raise uh you know over uh, well over 100 acres of uh atlanta's uh forest lands uh atlanta for people who mm-hmm. don't know about its terrain a lot because i mean often when you just see um you know televised and news depictions of atlanta you just see like you know in a city sort of stuff but it's got a huge forest mm-hmm. it's got one of the biggest forest canopies and forest coverage areas of any um city in the united states and uh, mm-hmm. forest that protect that protects from flooding that obviously you know keeps the air cleaner um and uh the forest particularly that uh cop city aims to raise um is surrounded by uh a vastly predominantly uh poor uh black neighborhoods um who would be directly at risk from the news uh, noise pollution uh, uh, air pollution, uh, and just the presence of the violent fact of more cops training in their vicinity. Um, so Stop Cop City is both a challenge to the continued, um, funding of aggressively militarized, um, policing in the U.S. It is an environmental struggle to protect a forest that is necessary for the people of Atlanta, um, that was also uh, previously, you know, these unbroken histories used to be a prison farm. Um, so, you know, this is this is a continued um, struggle against, yeah, like white, white supremacist policing, um, which meets itself at the intersection of environmental racism. Um, so for the last well over a year, um, organizers against Cop City have, uh, as I noted in my piece and I've, in a couple of pieces, uh, they've been incredibly successful. Like ground has not yet been broken and they've been successful as a small movement by being really nimble and using 
numerous tactics and strategies, including engaging with, um, you know, local community kids who've done like, you know, peaceful marches, then also uh, creating an encampment in the um, forest itself where people have like fed each other and looked after each other with waxing and waning numbers. But there's always been a sort of base of it, uh, including a more militant uh, contingent who've been willing to, um, you know, uh, create tree sits, which are risky, and, uh, you know, take up the front lines when police have attempted incursions. Um, and there's also been more of a national effort to make very specific targets, both for protest and for low-level property damage, of uh, the mass corporations uh, from real estate to even, like, Coca-Cola uh, that are pouring money into the Cop City project. Um, and some of that has been incredibly successful, not just because, you know, this occupation um, has lasted so long. I mean, most don't, right? Like Occupy Wall Street in New York was three months um, in actually keeping the park. Um, Standing Rock was far shorter, even though it was much, much, much larger. Um, but they've just had incredible staying power and um, incredible ability to use different kinds of tactics and bring in different coalitions. Was it scalable? Is it scalable? I mean, that's always a question, but I think it shouldn't, um, you know, even if the answer to that is no, it shouldn't not mean that it's not something to learn from as the uh, forest defenders themselves have explicitly um, and quite obviously learned from preceding movements. Um, yes, in the last month, uh, last six weeks, um, police have escalated uh, their attacks against the forest defenders, including a highly militarized raid, a multi-agency raid, uh, in which one forest defender, Tortuguita, was, uh, was killed uh, under very, very questionable circumstances, of course, um, or unquestionable, if you ask me, the police have claimed that sure. Tortuguita was shot, shot first. Um, you know, even if that's the case, uh, his family last, their family, excuse me, uh, last week, uh, or even this week released, uh, a statement, uh, based on the autopsy that they had demanded, which, um, revealed that, uh, they had at least 12 bullets in their body. Um, so, you know, was that, wow. that was necessary, uh, to, even if it was to disarm, uh, although, uh, released today body cam footage, uh, from the police, even though there was no, uh, direct body cam footage, but from body cam wearing agencies that were nearby the shooting and heard it, one officer can be heard saying, oh, something along the lines of, oh, those like assholes shot one of their own, uh, because only one officer who is wounded, not dead, was uh, hit with a bullet. So, um, you know, there has since been, rightfully so, a national outpouring, um, a number of vigils, a number of uh, acts of solidarity, uh, further property damage against the supporters of Cop City, um, and in turn, uh, an aggressive raid to try and clear the encampments. Will Cop City go ahead feasibly? You know, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, Trump eventually gave that permission to go ahead. Standing Rock was cleared, but did it nonetheless set an example and an incredible inspiration of, uh, you know, intersectional struggle, uh, indigenous-led climate, struggle um that very much kept uh at its heart an understanding that such struggle can't just be about one pipeline can't just be about um land uh in a 
a kind of non-robust sense, it has to be about uh, abolitionism and community building and liberation, essentially, these liberation struggles. Um, I think looking to Atlanta, because of all the issues it brings together um, and the way it's been able to really articulate that um, is, it's been really inspiring. Um, and I think, you know, it is of course a shame that yes, it wasn't until, uh, yet another police murder. In fact, the first, even though environmentalists are around the world, uh, killed by, uh, military and police forces in the hundreds, if not thousands every year, uh, this is the first example of an environmentalist killed in, um, the US. Uh, and then to the question of terrorism. So at the same time uh, as losing uh, a beloved comrade, um, the Atlanta forest defenders have had to reckon with um, incredibly extreme uh, charges for their presence at various protest actions and their presence in the forest with over 20 people currently facing um, state terror charges because there is a state terror terror statute um in atlanta um and i think that is a reminder uh which is not a surprising one to uh, a lot of leftists myself included that um we should be really cautious about pushing i mean a using the word terrorism but also pushing for further state engagement with the term and p- further terror statutes in terms of uh taking on the far right so after uh, January 6th, um, the Biden administration, uh, you know, did use the word domestic terrorism, talked, uh, about, uh, expanding, uh, domestic terror, federal domestic terror statutes, because right now there aren't exactly federal anti-terrorism laws. Um, but DHS Department of Homeland Security has, categorizations of what counts as domestic terror um, in order to uh, investigate and build cases around certain groups. Um, And it's, you know, wildly distorted. Yes, I'm not saying that there haven't been major cases against white supremacist organizations. There have been. But given that well over 70% of uh, extremist killings in the last 30 years, um, and even more so percentage-wise, um, have been right-wing extremists and white supremacists. Um, you know, the the focus on looking and creating categories like black identity extremist, as happened under Trump, um, are sort of laughable. And what that shows, which is no surprise um, to those rightly skeptical of this kind of state effort, is that, uh, you know, terror is always a, tight, uh, a title used by the state to select its own enemies. And we shouldn't be surprised that that um, is then weaponized more readily and uh, historically against black liberationists, um, anti-capitalists, environmentalists, those who genuinely threaten the status quo of the state rather than um, the sort of white supremacists with deep entrenchment and connections to and presence in um, law enforcement apparatus. Um, you know, a lot of the folk, the, the rare focus when it has been, when these sort of, uh, categories have been, uh, robustly and forcefully applied to white supremacists are, you know, uh, examples like Waco where there are anti-state, um, you know, libertarian extremists or, um, 
you know, the um, Bundy Ranch, uh, things like that. Um, but on the whole, no, like uh, the sort of white supremacist, thin blue line sort of extremist activity rarely invites the um, the category terrorist being implied to it. And that's why, you know, I think the... Um, the understanding the framework of of anti fascist the anti fascist framework of this being a three way fight that there is no allegiance to find with the state um, uh, in these matters uh, even in the rare occasions for example after January six where the state did apply its resources to crack down on far right extremism an enormous uh, amount that I'd want to speak to but the thing that I guess I want to follow up on that with is you know, my reading of your sense of the danger of tired tropes, there are these tired tropes in political thinking, political discourse, in political realism broadly, that are real profound barriers. So in the case of Cop City, the money is there for this project, let's call it, the plan is in place, economic interests in the city are in support, same with city council, and a small group stands against it. Um, and one of the things that stands against that small group is a certain kind of tired trope of uh, what you call the kind of green scare, this fear of environmental and animal rights activists destabilizing the system fundamentally, like questioning private property, questioning capitalism, questioning extractivism. Um, so there are all of these tired tropes that you're talking about. For example, in your article, on why queer communities are welcoming armed anti-fascist protection. One of the tired tropes you talk about is this kind of both sidesism of, you know, violence necessarily begetting more violence, that political counter-violence is always bad because it's going to create some sort of uh, a spiral of violence. Um, you talk about, you know, Biden's border policies and this tired trope of cruelty is the point, right? Which is again, this kind of thing that really uh, mystifies what's actually happening, which is the, um, you know, the reproduction of a logic of disposability and a nativism that, uh, or race realism uh, that is deadly, right? Right. Um, so in terms of, you know, this, this tired trope analysis that runs through a lot of your work, you know, I wonder if you could kind of help us theorize it in terms of like, for, from my perspective, the question of like political exhaustion, like the trap of having to use a political, like legible nomenclature that just gets worn down over time. Like, how do you think about tire tropes? How can the strategy of exhaustion be combated? And do you kind of consciously try to write with an awareness of the need to kind of evolve your own concepts and deconstruct them? Gosh, it's tricky um, because, you know, like obviously, um, those in liberation struggle can't spend, shouldn't, in my view, spend a lot of energy trying to, like, fight processes of co-optation. I mean, obviously be, like, acutely aware of them because it can, um, you know, very much destabilize and defang a movement. But, um, you know, if we spent all our time being like, oh, so the CIA put out like a woke advert being like, this woman of color is a CIA mm-hmm. agent and she's doing it as like a black Latina feminist in her, in the words of this advert that is a real thing. Um, and, uh, you know, does uh, the fact of co-optation doesn't therefore mean like the CIA gets to own black feminism like they just don't and so just like with something like that I'm just like let's keep going then and any 
uh, sort of Glenn Greenwaldy, Tucker Carlson types who are like, see, wokeness is just actually a way to support the CIA. Like, no, feminist liberation struggle is not a way to support the CIA. The fact <laughs> of co-optation does not mean that the thing being co-opted was in fact uh, powerful and to be maintained and fought for. In fact, it probably means the opposite. Like if, if um, you know, state powers mm. um, see something as potentially crucial and powerful, it's maybe because it is indeed that and it shouldn't be um, ceded. That shouldn't be ceded to them um in terms of uh you know the 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 tiredest of all perhaps of like um violence against violence um you know uh take the high road we go high they go low um i mean what's sort of fascinating about the violence begets violence particularly in this country's history um is that it's it's we just don't really in terms of liberation struggle um, there just really isn't evidence of defensive violence um, overwhelming. It doesn't always achieve a stated purpose, but the idea that it therefore like exceeds a stated purpose and then creates this uh, psych creates or perpetuates this cycle of violence is simply not true. Like even in terms of slave revolts mm-hmm. and the protection of marinage communities, um, you know, of course, there was defensive violence, but actually very little. Like, there was very little retributive violence against uh, slaveholders and uh, mm-hmm. those who uh, attempted to break apart marinage communities. In the same way, if you think about what was deemed, um, you know, the, the extraordinary violence of the Black Power Movement, it was actually, you know, there was actually very little uh, retributive killings. And, you know, uh, depends what you think. Property damages, but um, I certainly wouldn't say. Uh, I think there are examples of. I'm. I. I think it, it can. It can be really tempting to be like property damage is never violence. Windows can't scream. I'm like, well, I don't know. The desecration of a synagogue by a Nazi to me is violence. So I. I don't want to say that there's no such thing as violent property damage. I don't think property damage against you know uh, brutal power structures, uh, corporate power structures, policing power structures. Um, constitutes violence, uh, which speaks to the fact that obviously what gets to be violence has to be contextualized. And we're dealing with a problem where, um, you know, the state and capital uh, seems to have uh, a monopoly on on that sort of uh, delineation and distinction drawing. That's a problem. Another thing to struggle against, a key thing. Um, but, um, you know, what I think, what I think groups are doing successfully for example um the anti-fascist gun clubs who are um willing to take those front lines and stand in front of drag queen story hours and family friendly uh drag brunches or not so family friendly and kinky drag brunches not that i you know what who gets to be a family um but is that like liberal decryals of it it's not stopping them doing it right like they're still um going to continue that work and that I think is just that's that's all that can be done do I think my job as a writer often with a view to picking apart liberal pieties like no I'm not you know I don't obviously opinion writing is part of that is an effort towards persuasion but I'm not trying to persuade any 
any members of uh, the far right, I, you know, it's not, and they're not reading The Intercept anyway, and it's just not what I'm aiming for. Do I, do I often have in my uh, imagined sites, um, you know, well-meaning liberals who think themselves progressivist, who aren't knowingly committed to sort of uh, neoliberal statecraft, but find themselves uh, regurgitating and repeating um these kind of tropes, these tired tropes, um, without really, um, you know, they repeat them as sort of certainties, they're sort of learnt practices, they're habits, it's a set of habit forming. These aren't something that, that they've like sat down and learnt. You know, you can learn um, something like, you know, this, like this is the speed uh, a fly flies. These are things you can like investigate and look into. You can learn which trains run from the, you know, Nevins Street stop in New York. Those are things that if you don't know, you go and learn them. You don't just, you know, uh, imbibe them like you do these tired political tropes, like you do white ideology, like you do all kinds of societal habit-forming practices that people just sort of take up and take as common sense this is you know what Gramsci did mean by common sense some of which has the seeds of revolutionary thought in need of articulation some of it is deeply traditional um but these aren't things that people hold dearly to because they have sat around and like done the research um so I think like the use in calling that to people's attention actually picking those tropes apart um, does it always necessarily, is it always successful? No, people have a lot of, I don't know, commitments and convictions and comforts and desire for a comfort in maintaining tropes against violence and anger um, and what, what is productive or not. I was actually reading a paper yesterday by the British philosopher Amir Srivinasan, who mainly works in analytic philosophy. It's not like, you know, um, like not, she has some radical propositions she wrote a book called um the right to sex which was a feminist book and she's she's cool um but she wrote a paper a while back that I was reading randomly yesterday about how we talk about anger and she starts it by thinking by recalling the debate between William F Buckley and James Baldwin at the Cambridge Union Cambridge University Union that um it, it was it was uh recorded and people still watch it a lot it's like pretty famous because it was like you know James Baldwin versus conservative William F. Buckley. And Buckley sort of presents himself as sympathetic to black struggle. He says, like, you know, I I I I agree that society is very racist and there's a lot of oppression. Um, but he says, I don't I think that that anger from those in the struggle is counterproductive. Um, and therefore you should stop um with this expression of anger, this anger. And Baldwin rejects that um, for good reason and, you know, explains that, um, you know, as the line is along the lines of not that I would deign to quote without having in front of me, but so a paraphrase is that, you know, the the state of being a black man in America is a state of of rage and having to manage that. And that in itself is a sort of second order injustice, not only the the state of affairs that that means that that rage occurs and is apt uh but then also having to manage having to reckon with the second order injustice of then being told that you have to um decide whether your very reasonable rage 
is okay because it might be counterproductive. Um, whereas if you think about like a personal circumstance where you have a friend who's been harmed by someone, say, uh, you know, they're really angry because their partner betrayed them or cheated on them. You don't say, don't be angry, it's counterproductive. You ask, oh, why are you angry? And they give you the reasons for their anger. And you say, oh, that's very justifiable anger. I'm not going to tell you to stop being angry. That would be absurd. Whereas somehow in these moments of struggle, it seems like there's people help themselves, those in power, um, you know, liberal mainstream, help themselves to a logic that doesn't actually justify itself, which is, your anger is not justified if it's counterproductive. Stop being angry, it's counterproductive. Stop expressing anger, which is being ang angry. There's no such thing as, like, anger is, is, is expressed, right? Like, yes, there are examples of suppression of it, mm -hmm. but we understand the meaning of the word anger through its behavioral expression. Um, so being asked to, to stop being angry because it's not productive is saying, oh, I, the mainstream observer, have decided that it's more important to be productive than it is to be apt than it is to to be correct to have and that you know some people might say I believe in that and and here's why but they have to give grounds for believing in that we can't take it as a given that that is right and it is taken as a given and I think calling that I was like oh I like that and I hadn't even thought of it in those terms and I bring it up now just because I, I read Amir's paper yesterday um but I think it's like you know it's worth all of us thinking about of for ourselves for those we communicate with um, for those we are engaged in uh, protest and movements with of, you know, it's one, it is, it is a moral decision to say, to only talk about whether something's productive or counterproductive instead of whether it's justified or apt or has good grounds. Um, and that you have to choose between those things. Maybe you do have to choose between those things at certain moments, but that choice is a moral one that shouldn't just be assumed that we know the answer. And I think that's a lot of what's going on mm -hmm. when people talk about like the counterproductivity um, of, you know, uh, anger, angry responses, um, aggressive protest tactics. Um, and they haven't actually fully given um, grounds or enough of a strong argument to say that, that actually their claims of counterproductivity are correct for one, but also that they're more moral. I mean, there's a ton there, and I wanted to kind of use it to to raise the question of Chantal Mouffe's recent writing on left populism. What Mouffe is sort of trying to think through is this, um, and again, it's it's it runs parallel with your refusal of this kind of liberal model of civility and patience, a commitment to reason that is a kind of, um, you know, Janus-faced commitment to reason given the ways in which it disregards the data calculatedly in certain ways around, you know, the the viability of def the defund movement, for example, um, and, and a commitment to direct action and even aggressive resistance, like as something that um, could actually get us out of the sort of place of being mired in a pseudo-centrism. Um, you know, for, for Mouffe, like there is this resurgent nationalism of far right populism that needs to be countered. And from her perspective, it really does come down to like what we do with our anger, like how we translate it into something meaningful. And that that's a problem on the left, um, that to use your term, we've kind of kneecapped ourselves to uh, ourselves to a certain extent. 
Um, and, and I guess like the kind of case study that I think it makes sense to focus on is the, the, you know, wave of anti-trans legislation, um, in the United States and not just in the United States, but, um, how you're writing about it in terms of like in your, your article on Michigan's new anti-trans bill, which is so punitive, you say that, you know, part of this is about mainstreaming. Right, you say that anti-trans liberal feminism has been mainstreamed um, in the very same opinion pages that once treated the position as an unpleasant British curiosity, right? So there's like a a, a kind of civil centrist complicity with far right populist panics and even fascism. You say um, that reinforces transphobia. Here, you need sharpness. You need a, a, a clearer politics of of transliberation and yet we're not seeing it right like so i don't know if you could speak to this sort of liberal allergy to clarity around like the particular question of gender affirming care and 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 yeah like where that comes from yeah and i mean i wouldn't um yeah and i'm not sure like the left has kneecapped itself i mean like there are many ways in which it has right but like uh-huh. those are you know um there's lots mm. of different like lefts, I guess. Um, I would say liberals have kneecapped the left. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, I'm also nervous to like use, I like, I, I don't know how, like, and I don't really have much space to go into it now. I don't know how much I believe in the idea of like a left populism. And I would also say a lot of mm. people that do take up the, uh, at least the kind of term of left populism are exactly often the kind of leftists who have no interest in trans liberation and call it a distraction. So I think that to me is deeply dangerous. Um, uh-huh. But in terms of like the yeah. liberal mainstreaming of um, anti-transness, um, I mean, it speaks to like something that, uh, you know, it's, it's incredibly troubling and like actually not something I particularly expected because um, I mean, yes, you can mm-hmm. expect all kinds of, um, uh, you know, rabid defenses of uh, gender binaries and protection of like the traditional family from from all um, political backgrounds. So, of course, like conservative liberals, it doesn't particularly surprise me that uh, you know they would find themselves aligning with um, the right. And it's just it was unusual uh, that for a few years there was this. Um, massive transphobia uh sullying every single newspaper in england including the guardian and continues to do so it's vile uh in the name of feminism um so trans exclusionary feminism um and at the time and there was a uh new york times uh column written a few years ago by my friend sophie lewis uh saying like why you know like explaining to americans why British liberals were, there was so much turfism in British liberalism. Um, and that needed, that that article made sense at the time because you didn't see it so much in the mainstream press here. Being transphobic was, you know, just a few years ago, very much a mark of the far right. It was like, you're wearing a MAGA hat. Um, you love austerity. I mean, liberals love austerity too, but um, you love Trump and you hate trans people. Um, and it had been obviously a major platform at the state level for um, Republican representatives. Um, and, uh, you know, but then there's this sort of sea change wherein every week now there's, uh, you know, similar things that you would have seen in The Guardian from writers like Ruch Pamela Paul in The New York Times. Um, and then uh, reported pieces that, um, you know, 
include a lot of trans voices and and make statements about like the importance of trans healthcare um for youth and stuff but hang this um in their two sidesism very much leave the reader the especially the not particularly informed reader with the sense of trans children as a site of peril um and that we're dealing with some mm -hmm. sort of social contagion that could be a site of peril uh when no other uh medical interventions including teenage girls getting um cosmetic breast surgery which is you know happens to just infinitesimally more often than trans top surgeries um for uh yeah like uh, trans youth um so uh you know i think these are really problematic news reports and um you know trans children would not be notional as a site of peril if society as a whole wanted trans children right like and i think that's what this points to is like some in a in a deep sense even very like oh, of course i like you know i uh, the people who are like i have friends who are trans or i respect anyone's choice to be trans actually with these sort of articles and this sort of suspicion um you very much see uh an underlying and i think in need of reckoning with point that like suggests that like it's not just about tolerating trans children that we need it's like wanting trans children i'm not saying wanting cis children who are not trans to be trans but saying like oh trans children is like that's great and the mm -hmm. historian jules gill peterson makes that point and it shows how far away we are from that um and it's a very kind of you know the the liberal uh tendency towards tolerance being the highest political um notion or the highest political uh stance we could have towards difference as opposed to uh you know a, an embracing and a flourishing and i think you know it's it's really notable to me that the same sort of uh rhetoric the same sort of even like sentence structures we did see you know as only like a decade or so ago and then just some decades before that ago of calling into being this like figurative child who's in under threat which is you know the constancy that is central to fascist rhetoric like the future the child this child figuration who is never a real child um but you see liberals doing that mm -hmm. again too and they'll say things like you know of course if a child is trans and they want to be a trans I respect that but I'm just worried I'm worried their lives will be difficult I'm worried they'll suffer um but that's exactly what people said in almost the same you know syntax saying oh you know if people are gay fantastic but should they be able to adopt children I just worry about the children and people before that used to say that about interracial marriage you know people can love who they want but i do worry about the children and the suffering of interracial children and of course the answer then and the answer now is there is a way to relieve that suffering and that is to change the societal context such that trans children are not considered a site of peril but that they are embraced um and that all kinds of gender variation is embraced and the ability to move back and forth right um and i think it's that sort of you know i don't think we can shift the minds of the absurd far right who will use use this um you know their pronatalism body fascism um removal of all bodily autonomy this is very much in, it's central to their program this is not 
um, you know, there's no persuading there, um, you know, as it was in Mussolini's program. Um, but I think the, um, for liberals, well-meaning liberals, um, I think calling to attention um, how much they have landed on the side of the far right through sentences like this, through upholding this sort of fascist figuration of a child rather than embracing real children, um, I think is really important. And I think, um, and also remembering that, you know, a lot of this struggle and uh, discussion is around um, bans, awful bans that must be stopped on um, access to uh, healthcare um, for trans children. Um, most trans children have no resources or support to get anything like healthcare intervention and hormones in the first place. So it's even like, you know, uh, the idea that this is readily available, let alone in order to be mass banned, it's barely available in the first place. So I think we have to keep that in mind too um, and not be kind of mm -hmm. led astray by uh, either far right rhetoric, of course, but even this the current New York Times rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, obviously, especially when you're talking about an audience that might not have the information, um, rhetoric has this kind of reifying effect. And so, yeah, like trying to simply push against and say, like, trans is not the worst case scenario um, and, and try to uh, unpack these underlying assumptions is really powerful. I mean, using this, this using language carefully um, can either, you know, do, doing so hopefully will engender a degree of sympathy or if, if more than sympathy, like or shared struggle, uh, you know, a shared struggle. Um, and this is what I appreciate about your writing and, and, and the way you communicate, right? Like the goal clearly for you is to kind of write urgently for the purpose of creating timely effects. Um, so I really appreciate you making the time to talk to me. Well, thank you very much. It was excellent to talk to you and thank you for your kind words. <laughs>